Great. Well, I want to welcome up our panelists. Um, we have Ephraim Smith, who's a co-leading uh, pastor at Bayside Church in Sacramento. Greg Boyd, who is founder and um, pastor, senior pastor now at Woodland Hills, St. Paul. Joanne Lyon is, um, was, uh, served as the director of the Wesleyan denomination for eight years and is now serving as their ambassador. And Rich Velotas. Um, from New Life Fellowship, just outside New York City, senior pastor there, lead pastor. So I just, we want to spend as much time hearing from these folks and then from you all. So beginning, we'll have a question and answer afterwards for about 15, 20 minutes. So f just know that you're, we, we'll have time for that. Um, but I want to give these guys, um, they'll have up to eight minutes to share what they have to share with us on this topic. So we'll get started. Thank you. And she means that too, because she sits down and she says that means you've got one minute. And then you're trying to think, oh, got to wrap it all up here in one minute. It was interesting to me to hear why you're here. Uh, and uh, this is very good. And I, I hope what I have to say is going to answer some of your questions. Um, I know the rest of the panel will because they're really quite good. But I have chosen in this ancient future kind of thing to look at the 18th century. <laughs> That's not back to the early church. Uh, but the 18th century and what was happening, particularly in England, and of course, since I'm a Wesleyan, I'm going to talk about John Wesley. Uh, but John Wesley covers a lot, covers the, the, the waterfront for all of us in, uh, in many ways. And so I want to just, I made this list here, so I'm going to have to refer to it a minute. I didn't have it all memorized. But I wanted to, you to think about our culture today, our American culture, and how it was in when John Wesley hit the streets of, and, the, and the, the fields of England. So this is what the culture was like at that time. In 1738, Bishop Berkeley declared that religion and morality in Great Britain had collapsed to a degree that was never known before in any Christian country. A corrupt and even dead church darkened most aspects of English life. England now had the monopoly of the slave trade. It is estimated that the number of Africans during this century transported mainly in British ships and largely from West Africa to America ran into the millions and some believe that even just during this time of John Wesley's life, 1703 to 1791, were 10 million slaves. There was also some slavery as well in England. And when you look at that, you think, okay, slavery is so embedded in the economy. This is evil at its worst. Embedded in the economy, the church practiced it, no one saw anything different. Britain largely was two nations, the rich and the poor. The laws were devised largely to keep the poor in their place and under control. Also was known as the gin age resulting in poverty, violence, prostitution, murder, also creating social disintegration and degeneration. Desperate measures for survival were perverted concentration of sport. Gambling became huge. Animal fighting, even taking place on church grounds. Clergymen were involved in cockfighting with metal spurs. Church bells would ring to honor the local winner. There was no education for the poor. The church system had charity schools, but most teachers there were barely literate. No health care for the poor. And child labor was huge. Even five-year-olds were made to work in the mines. It is in this context that John Wesley emerges. And as we, you've studied John Wesley, you know that ultimately uh, that he was an Oxford don. He was highly educated in Oxford. Uh, lived in that world and in the Anglican world at that time, in these churches that would be described as, as dead. And then John Wesley had this heartwarming experience uh, that he describes that on um, that morning when he was early to the church and was while he was reading the preface to the book of Romans, the preface written by Martin Luther, he says, suddenly his heart was strangely warmed. And as we move through that, we find that really it is where he encountered and he said he knew that his sins were forgiven, even his own. And, uh, uh, and that it was the, that moment that was so transformational in his own life that he couldn't stop talking about it. And it was his, his beginning life in being led by the Holy Spirit. 
And so he, keep, he kept preaching in the Anglican church, and they didn't like it. Uh, and ultimately, he was kicked out. And so he, the only place he, would, he could go was to the fields. And he would go to the fields, and many of them near the mines. This is where he, be, he came in contact with the poor. This is when he began to really look and understand how the poor really lived. And he was, a, he was abhorred what, of the things that he saw, and then all the discrimination that was taking place. And so as people came to become followers of Christ, they began to realize, and the poor began to come together and realize that their lives were transformed. And then that was what began to take a look at all of these kinds of things. So just a few examples. And this is where I think we can see the difference between charity and systemic evil. So, for example, the children, the five-year-olds that were working in the mines, uh, he, he said this was an abhorrent to God for five-year-old children to be in mines and they're, they're, they would be in some of the deepest parts of the mine. Their little fingers could get into crevices that they couldn't. They were being absolutely um, uh, used as, as, as machinery by the wealthy that owned the mines. And so he began to speak about it. The people began to speak about it. The poor began to speak about it. They found their voice as well. And so in this process, you will find, there's a whole lengthy things about this, but you will find that in this time, um, uh, literally, they, they, that's when they began to look at systemic evil and the laws were changed. And children then, it was against the law then for children to work in mines and he began to open up then for schools for children to begin to, uh, poor children to begin to receive education because they, of course, received no education at that time. So you see the, those kinds of laws changed. Um, he, there was debtor's prison at that time. If you, you owed rich people and you couldn't pay, you went to prison. He went to the debtor's prison, paid every person's fine to get out of that prison, and on top of that, gave them a small amount of money to start a business. So it was that, those kinds of things that you saw over and over and over. Uh, there are two that I, there some, I love the corn laws because what had happened during that time, the price of gin had gotten so high, I mean, uh, the price of grain had gotten so high because they were making big money on gin that poor people could not buy their own bread. And I look back at that and I think now in our day, we would have all run to Kroger's and taken bread to poor people. No, 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 that isn't what they did. He said the law needs to be changed so poor people can buy their own bread. And so those are the corn laws. You can look that up, and it's very fascinating. Ultimately, the price of grain came down, and, and the price of bread came down, and poor people could buy their own bread. And then we find that ultimately, in all of this peace that took place, and again, I want to emphasize, this was about thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ, and their lives renewed, and all of this taking place. And it's, it's fascinating to see, and I think I look at it in our day. We're looking at issues that we have, and how does this compare? Ultimately, historians say that England was saved from the bloody revolution that France had because the nation had been so reformed. The, the, the people had been lifted up. This is what I call, when we're talking about is renewal happening? Well, this is what I call renewal. It isn't just a bunch of people who got together and they got excited and loved Jesus and they stayed together. The, the culture becomes renewed. Holy living. My turn. Um, I, I, we're supposed to, I, th I think we're supposed to talk about the same thing we talked about last time, but can I talk about something different? I have a real low threshold for boredom. I'm hearing myself do the same thing twice over. It's like, I'm going to change it up a little bit. Uh, so, uh, you know, in the, in the early church, Paul says this in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He's drawing an analogy uh, with the Moses in the Old Testament when he had a veil over his face to conceal the glory because people couldn't take, they couldn't take it. Uh, and he's drawing an analogy on that. And he says that uh, to this day, when these non-believers read uh, the, the law, there's a veil over their minds, so they can't see the truth. Uh, but when anyone turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. And then Paul says, uh, starting in verse 17, so where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And he's talking about, can you see the truth or not? Uh, and there's a freedom to see the truth. And then in verse 18 he says, so now we all, uh, as though reflected in a mirror, we behold the glory of God uh, and are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So he's, he's talking there about something that believers can see in their mind that non-believers can't see. And, and what we see, he says, is the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, 
all that's happening in the place that we would today call our imagination. In fact, if you look at, uh, in the early church, the Holy Spirit would, would tell these folks to go to this town or don't go to that town, and they would kind of lead them and direct them. Uh, or they'd have visions of things, and this goes on even after the New Testament in the early church. But as, as you read these, these accounts of people having interactions with the Lord, or the desert fathers, it's all over the place. They have such a living relationship. They talk to Jesus, and Jesus talks back. Um, but it's really clear that all that's happening, it's not like they're having some kind of hallucination. It's, it, it's happening in what, their head, in what we today would call imagination. Um, Origen, in the second century, he, he has this, uh, in, in one of his, I think it's on uh, commentary on Leviticus, but he says that the reason the Lord became incarnate uh, was so that we would have God in tangible form. And that that shouldn't just be an advantage to those people who were alive at the time, but rather uh, Jesus is always the perfect manifestation of what God is like. And then he says, um, we've learned that uh, the, the enemy has stolen our mind so that our, our mind now tends to gaze at the, the, the devil and we, and, and we become, we take on the image of the devil. And that's the principle there is you always become whatever it is that, that, that you're imagining. That's what you're having faith for. Um, he says, but that's against our nature. So how much better will it be when we gaze upon the one who we're supposed to be gazing on, the one that we're created for, the, the one who created us, uh, Jesus Christ, and then we take on his image. So it, it's, the principle is what you see in your imagination uh, determines what you become. Now, it, it, we've lost, to, throughout the church tradition, you find that there's this thing called imaginative prayer, or usually it's called cataphatic prayer. And it's praying intentionally with images, mental images in your mind. And the stained glass windows were there to help in that process, and sometimes the icons were there to help in the process, to stimulate the imagination. But they formed a narrative. They lived in, in, a, in an intentional narrative, a narrative about who God is and about who we are and the world that we're living in. And, and their encounters were real and tangible and vibrant. Now, because of the scientific revolution, we have largely come to dismiss the imagination. Um, it, it's, it's the land of make-believe. Imagination is what children do, and it takes us away from reality. But in fact, imagination can do that. It can just be a plaything, but it also can take you closer to a reality. We know this is true even in science. In science, a lot of imagination is used. I mean, it's, it's, you, you, you see the, the helix you know, formation, and, and, and so the, 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 it plays a large role in discovering truth even in science. But in the early church, they, they saw it as the inner sanctum. In fact, that's kind of been the, the, the tradition throughout history, the inner sanctuary. The place where we really encounter God, where it can become concrete, tangible, as real as talking to you. And, and um, some of us have found that when you really begin to surrender your imagination to the Spirit and, and gaze upon the face of Jesus and just let God be God and, and hear him say to you all the things that he said about you in Scripture, but now he's saying it to you, looking into your eyes with your name. Uh, see, that's what impacts the soul. I, I, I love knowing that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's good information, but it's when I can see and experience and hear and sense and see Jesus say, Greg, I love you uh, with a perfect, everlasting love. And I gave my life. It's when it's personalized. That that's, that's what my soul was made for. I, I'm, 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 we're all starving for that kind of love and that kind of significance. Um, and, and so one of the things I think we need to recover back is just the, the, the centrality of imagination. In fact, frankly, evangelicals are still a little scared of this because they associate it with the New Age movement. In fact, I wrote a book on this called Seeing is Believing, uh, the, the Power of Imaginative Prayer. And I, it took 10 years to get that published because when I, I wrote it, it, I actually was writing it while this other book, The Seduction of Christianity, just came out by, what's his name? The Seduction of Christianity. Um, what's his name? It's The Seduction of Christianity. Hunt, Hunt, David Hunt. That's what I was going to say. Okay, good, yeah. <laughs> And he bashes everybody who even talks about the imagination as being a New Age conspiracy. And even James Dobson <laughs> was in the New Age conspiracy because he talks about the role of imagination. And Richard Foster. Uh, and so there's a paranoia there. I think we need to get over that. Because when you really can believe that this isn't just by imagination, the spirit, it's like when you surrender the spirit, it becomes more than imagination. And there's times where stuff goes on there with me that I could never have thought of. It's like, okay, the, I, I'm talking to the real Jesus here. I'm, I'm meeting Jesus face to face. And there are all sorts of wonderful healing things can happen, and that's where the transformation happens. And so whether, it, I mean, it's, that, that, that's just in prayer, using the imagination prayer. I think we need to be looking at incarnating the word of God 
And all, the, the word of God is incarnate, right? Which means tangible, concrete. And the imagination is what does that, and it needs to be expressed in every form you can imagine, whether it's poetry or art or sculpturing or, you know, we, we've, the church got down to the point where the only thing we ever use is verbal stuff. We just, you know, speak it. Blah, 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 blah. We always talk, 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 talk. But God didn't just talk, 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 talk. God became, you know, he incarnated, he became one of us. So, so I, I think we need to be much, be much more incarnational in our prayer lives and in our spirituality and in our services and recapture the imagination for God. Take it away, Ephraim. There we go. Uh, my journey into the ancient future uh, church discussion and reflection, uh, it begins with my study of the potential intersections between the church of the first century, pietism, and black liberation theology and black church praxis. Uh, the thought here is that, um, is there a connection that can inform the future church around the first century church as a suffering, oppressed, minority, marginalized, incarcerated people. That that's the reality of who they were as the beginnings of Christian community and the Christian church was being formed. And there's similarity in some of the forms of pietism. Um, especially in the ministry of Franke in Germany, who connected the experience of worship or liturgy and Bible study with works for reform amongst the poor and specifically with under-resourced public school children. And then connecting that to the beginnings of the black church in the United States of America, a church that begins in slavery, the antebellum church, a church that is deeply connected to no separation, no compartmentalization of spiritual and physical freedom. That, that a total integration of the liberation of spirit, soul, and body. And so the reason that for me, I believe that um, an intersection of uh, liberation pietism and black church praxis and liberation theology and the first century church is important for the future church is because in the United States of America, we have created a new narrative, a new picture of what first century Christians were like. And we've used uh, the fact that our church history and our American church theology is predominantly, if not exclusively, shaped by European and white church theology that then we assume uh, uh, kind of a suburbanite, wealthy, privileged image on first century church Christians. And we, and we remove the, the, the true identity of these men and women as, as minority, marginalized, incarcerated, um, victims of the death penalty, uh, suffering people. And so I believe that we should go beyond just uh, European white uh, history of the church. And we should consider uh, black church history black church theology and praxis as a blessing to the entire American church. What if in our liturgy, in our experience of worship, we brought into our experience the prayers of black slaves in America, the hymns, the cries, the laments, and how would that help us then see ourselves as shepherding, pastoring, preaching, teaching, on the shoulders of a suffering, oppressed, marginalized people and find not just solidarity, but uh, familial identity 
with them? What if we then finally acknowledged the marginalized Messiah known as Jesus who lived as truly God but truly a refugee, incarcerated, brutalized, oppressed, suffering human being that also brought justification and salvation and liberation? I think that beyond just how we're going to pray, which is very important, and you're going to hear that from my dear brother, and, and how we could sing, what if we allowed uh, the foundations of the black church in America to have a voice in what the future church looks like, that we might have a more authentic understanding of the shoulders on which we stand as we pastor, as we serve. And, and I, the, the other thing I want to say about this is because um, the, the dominant church, the white church, has not, uh, in, in a corporate way, seen the blessing of the black church. I'm getting concerned that there's a segment of the black church that's walking away from the blessing itself. And that now there are some black churches that are so obsessed with being like white churches and being consumeristic churches and being capitalistic casino-like churches and big show attractional churches that even some segment of the black church no longer appreciates the shoulders on which it stands. And so I believe that the first century church, that liberation, pietism, and the antebellum slave church can bless the future of the entire church of America. Mm. All right. Um, uh, tell me about it. All right, thanks, Ephraim. Uh, <clears throat> you know, when I think about ancient practices, um, I want to spend a little bit of my time talking about prayer, and in particular, a, a rhythm of prayer. And I think that's something that needs to consistently be recovered because this is not something that is new to us. This is not something that begins with, uh, in monasticism. It begins in the very scriptures. And so when you look at Psalm 119, verse 164, which says, seven times a day have I, do I praise. You look at uh, Daniel, who stops multiple times to pray. You look at Jesus, who has a rhythm of prayer. And I think the rhythm of prayer is something that needs to be recaptured and reimagined because I am convinced that a vast majority of the church doesn't pray. I don't think pastors pray. Um, I don't think the average person, pray, uh, on, generally speaking, a life with God in prayer. Now, all the statistics say in this country that we pray. 80% of Christian Barna would say pray every day, but what never is uh, qualified is the definition of prayer. And so um, when I think about um, our typical rhythm, this is how it typically unfolds and has unfolded in my life and in the people I pastor. Uh, we have something called quiet time in the kind of evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic traditions in which in the morning, if we get up to, this is a ma major if, if we get up to pray in the morning, um, we, we have our coffee, we feel, we got our scriptures, we got a journal, and God is like really, I mean, yes, yes, Lord, we feel great about it. And the Holy Spirit visits us in a profound way. But I'm from New York City, and so um, by the time I get on the train, around 8.30 or so, someone's already stepped on my foot. Someone sat in the seat. There was no space. They sat there anyway. And so whatever the Spirit of God deposited in me, I'm already down 20%. And so I get to work, and um, the coworker says something to me. My boss critiques me. Someone steals my stapler. I'm, I'm down to now 50% or whatever the Lord did. Uh, a critique from a client, a uh, bad phone call. Uh, by the end of the day, I'm not even a Christian anymore, and that's just the flow of the day. I began in the spirit, uh, but I ended in the flesh, you know? And so uh, we go home, we order some food and watch the news and watch the game, and we go, let's do it again in the morning. And so we get up in the morning, we have our scriptures, we have our journal, we have our time with God, and we get on the train, someone steps on my shoes, someone sat where they shouldn't have sat, someone steals my stapler, bad report from the boss, and the process goes over and over again. It's not sustainable. Quiet time in that kind of way is not sustainable. What we need is a rhythm. 
a rhythm of being with God. And this is why I've been deeply embedded, uh, indebted to the um, monastic tradition, the Desert Fathers tradition, which comes out of the story of Scripture, of what does it mean to have a rhythm with, with God. And so at its core is an ability for us to do uh, what Henry Nouwen said, we need two kinds of ministries. We need a ministry of presence, and we need a ministry of absence. A ministry of presence is we are with the people, we're, we're, we're there to lay hands on the sick, we're there to proclaim the good news of Jesus, we're there to work for justice, we're, we're present. Uh, but he says we also need a ministry of absence, and what he meant by absence wasn't um, hiding from your people. Uh, what he meant was it, it's a creative withdrawal in which, and these are his words, and I quote, sometimes we have to leave so that the Spirit can come. And sometimes we have to leave personally environments because God can work just fine without us, uh, but so that we can allow God to do the work that God needs to do within us. And so what does it mean for us to pull away throughout the course of the day, whether for two minutes, whether for five minutes, whether for 20 minutes? This woman, Linda McCullough uh, Moore, she's actually at this conference here, and I met her yesterday. She wrote a book called um, uh, The Book of Not-So-Common Prayer. Really good book. And she gives an illustration at the beginning of her first chapter in which she says, imagine that you live your existence in the morning uh, eating a bagel for breakfast, and then throughout the course of the day, you get a grape here, a cracker here, a little bit of juice here and there, and you live your life in that kind of way. But then one day, you discover something called meals where you can actually sit down for a prolonged period of time and actually find yourself sustained by something bigger than a cracker. And she said, most of our lives, and I believe this is true, we have that first kind of way of living where we might have a bagel in the morning and then we're scrounging for some crackers here and there and we're so hungry. What would it look like for us to have a rhythm where in the same way that we stop to eat, we stop to be with Jesus, to cultivate being with him? And I'll, I'll close with this here. What this requires is a reimagination of what prayer is. Now, I come from a Pentecostal charismatic tradition, and I, and I still deeply hold on to my roots there. And I pray uh, prayers, loud prayers of intercession. I, I pray, I, I mean, I, I'm calling on the name of Jesus for neighbors and such. But then there's a time to simply be, and prayer being the cultivation of friendship, of communion and confession, where we are, to use Greg's language in 2 Corinthians 4, to behold, because we, we do become what we behold. And so I want to be like David, who says in Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And here's the word. Maggie Ross wrote a good book called Silence, a User's Guide. The whole book is on this word, behold. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And then for in time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. All that there. And so what does it mean to recover a rhythm? This is not something that began with uh, the Desert Fathers. Didn't be begin with uh, St. Benedict. Uh, this is right in our scriptures uh, and it's something I believe uh, we need to recover, ancient riches that we need to recover for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we want to take the next couple of minutes, or maybe just a full minute, um, to just think of, um, just allow, just take a minute to allow questions to come, um, responses. You can even, you know, just add comments to what you heard. You could share if something made you feel uncomfortable or particularly challenged or maybe even you disagree. Uh, feel free to share that as well. And, um, and for the panelists, I would, if, they, if they also want to ask a question of each other or uh, build upon a thought they heard, by all means. So we'll just take a minute of quiet. What seems to be bubbling up from the surface here? Who would like to go first? Um, 
And it, what's weird is that they've been caricatured ever since. Like the pietists, like Chuck Colson once wrote an article accusing me, Greg Boyd is a pietist. And he meant it as an insult because he was saying that, that, that I, I, I think that we, we should just preach to souls and get them saved and leave all the social action to government, which is not at all my position. But, um, but that is the caricature. And it's just weird because the earliest, Frankie and others, they were building hospitals and I mean, they were just impacting the culture in all these beautiful ways. And somehow they've now been reduced to this kind of emotional sentimentalism. And I Yes, exactly, yeah. I want to say something, uh, add to what you said to say, Greg, about imagination. Uh, that's something that I think we've totally lost, and it particularly did it get stuck in the New Age stuff. But that is the way it is all over the world. And uh, about three years ago, I was in Egypt, and I was in Cairo with quite a few pastors who had lived through the Arab Spring, and we had these discussions. And one of them said, you need to know that the Arab Spring broke our imagination of what God can do. Well, I'm thinking, you know, what are some encouraging words here? Da 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 da. And then apparently that was on my face as we were having another conversation. And finally, one of the pastors said, Oh, but Joanne, you need to know what we mean by that. Since the Arab Spring, millions of Muslims have come to Christ. God broke our imagination because it wasn't large enough. Great, you can keep that one. Great, thank you guys. Did you have something in the back? No. Yes, great. Um, my question is for Ephraim. You had um, so eloquently mentioned how we need to have a respect for standing on the shoulders of black churches as a white girl who doesn't have much experience in the black church. Um, and who is going to a church that is more predominantly white, what would you propose that looks like in actuality? Yes. <clears throat> One is, um, so there is a book by Joseph Washington on uh, prayers of African Americans, or it's African American prayers, and it actually has, I mean, it's a large volume that has prayers from slaves through prayers of pastors and uh, church mothers and fathers during the civil rights movement. And that could uh, work in concert with other uh, books, whether it's a hymnal or, or other tools that you would use in your experience of worship so that those prayers um, aren't just um, the black church's prayers, but they're America's church's prayers. And because there are, I mean, just as we've leaned on practices of the Desert Fathers or practices of churches from parts of Europe that might not necessarily be um, your particular uh, ethnicity of Europe, but yet we've grabbed hold of it. We said, oh, these prayers from Germany, these prayers from England, we've, we've found a way to take those ancient prayers and practices, and I'm just uh, contending that we should do the same thing with the black church and I think another way out of that is to, um, is to press ourselves beyond the rigid yet false shells of racialization that um, r the, the dastardly deed that race has done is to convince us, one, that it's so real. The implications of living out the myth is real. But the actual structure in and of itself is not biblical or godly. We actually have way more in common, so many similarities. And so I think by adopting those prayers as not those people's prayers, but our prayers, helps us rise out of the false identities into our kingdom citizenship. Yes, and, and the, the author is Joseph Washington. Oh, James Washington, I'm sorry. A brother with the last name Washington. Yeah, so James Washington, I'm sorry. Great, yes. I would just love to hear uh, from each of you maybe a brief account of how you view the Lord's Supper in your tradition. I'm all over the place, uh, but this is what I believe is that Jesus is mystically present as we take the bread and the cup together. And so I don't just look at it as something as a memorial. I don't look at something. I believe that the Holy Spirit is 
there's a mystical reality of Christ's presence when taken in faith that can um, transform our very lives. And so, I mean, I believe you are what you eat in that respect. And so, but I believe something uh, mystical is taking place that I can't really understand uh, or, or put into words. Yeah. Very similar. I'm, I'm in the Evangelical Covenant Church. And so we, we you know, we're, we're both uh, shaped by pietism, uh, by the, the Swedish Lutheran Church. And then, and then I got in there. <laughs> but, um, but we see it beyond symbolism, but we don't go as far as the Catholic tradition's view. And so we're, we're in that balance of something mysterious is going on here with this bread and with this wine that is transformative for us even today. It's an, it's an empowering moment experiencing the presence of God in community. We said as, as uh, renewing our covenant vows, uh, so this is like the like a second wedding or something where you just renew, like remember what he did for us and then we renew our vows for, for him. In our, in our view, uh, the idea, it should have been a supper. And, and so we encourage our house churches to actually have a meal and, and, and celebrate that and, and remember Jesus in the meal. Uh, majority of our people who attend aren't ready for that. And so we, we have... Behind the scenes, we call our, our, our corporate communion because we, th we think intimacy and community is all very much a part of the covenant. And, and it really only has, like with marriage, it only has sense within, when embedded in a, co in a covenantal, covenantal con context. Um, so what happens here, like people come and it's more of a missional thing. Like they expect this to be done once in a while. This is what you do at church, right? And, and they don't have a small group or a house church where they can do this. And so we, we kind of have a symbol of a symbol. It's like, well, well it's a, a surrogate kind of supper. This stands for the whole supper. Imagine we were having a meal here, but we had to have just a little cracker and, 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 a, and a cup. Uh, but we're always trying to get people to then introduce it into their house church context. Well, we would be uh, Anglican Methodist tradition. Uh, and it's the mystical presence of Christ. Uh, we also have open communion. Anyone may come. It's not closed at all. And we even believe that people may take communion at that may not have been a believer and may take communion at that time and become a believer and be forgiven. We've had that happen. I mean, it's rather marvelous to just experience that. Great question. Here and then here, yeah. Well, we've been talking a lot about what works well and what we should probably, you know, take uh, positive things to pull them through to the future of the church. But what things do you see that continue to happen that were even in the ancient church that did not work or even faithful things that have been morphed to now wrongfully work? And how should we go about stopping those or fixing those things? I would say, and as an Anabaptist, this is my perspective on this, that a major change uh, happened when um, the, the church, well, the way I put it in the last session is that the meaning of the resurrection changed. Um, early on, the resurrection was all about the victory of the cross, um, and, and, and once the church inherited a bunch of political power in the fourth, fifth centuries, uh, it became a victory from the cross, uh, where uh, Jesus suffered for us so that we don't have to. And they gave a triumphalistic understanding of this resurrection. We, to walk in resurrection power means we walk in victory. Uh, whereas with Paul, I, I would argue that whenever he's talking with the resurrection power of Christ, it's the power to live a cruciform life, uh, to live a servant, humble, other-oriented, Christ, to participate in his sufferings and his death, as well as in his resurrection. And, um, uh, and, and so they're, they're just motivated to have a humble approach. They weren't trying to conquer the world or fix the world or whatever. They're just trying to bear witness uh, that largely got lost in the, the fourth, fifth century, 
And then we've had a Christendom model, uh, which is the church militant and triumphant, the church that's going to conquer the world. Um, I, I, I think right now, I, I'm amazed at how I continue to wake up to Christendom vestigial remains. It's like layers where I, a party still wants to win, and, and that's Christendom. We want to win, which is just a, 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 just a version of paganism. Uh, and we want our God to win, and want, you know, whatever. So we enter into the polarities of the, of the world on one side or the other, whereas Jesus always managed to have a third way, but, but we get ourselves sucked into these things, and, and we're conditioned to have you know, the sense of rightness, the idol of rightness. So I really think it's, it's time to get back to, a, like, to be a follower of Jesus is to live. A, the cross is something that we're, we're to emulate, we're, we're to, to model. It's an example of how we're supposed to live, and that's explicitly taught there. And uh, that's the character of God that we're supposed to be. And then trusting that that way of living, though it looks like you're losing on Good Friday, you win on Easter. Uh, this, this whole gig only works if you believe in eternal life, because otherwise you're going to hang on to your life. We're supposed to give it away, so you have to live in an eternal narrative um, that uh, we're, we're in that makes sense. Lose your life so you can find it. I would. No, no, I, I, I want to I jump on the bandwagon. It, you said something in the last form that I'm going to steal like it's mine. Okay. So, you know, this, this has implications in how we view Jesus. So in 2 Corinthians 5, you know, uh, Paul talks about, um, you know, not seeing each other from a worldly point of view once we saw Christ that way. So I was thinking, what does Paul mean by once we saw Jesus from a worldly point of view. Well, maybe for him personally, it's how he saw Jesus before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then everything changed because he, he had this worldly view of Jesus. He, he refused to believe a, a, a divine view, a transcendent view of Jesus. And I think that we have our own issue with that today that, you know, post-Constantine, uh, we, we have distanced ourselves and we need to recover and rediscover the marginalized Messiah. The Jesus that not just finds solidarity with the marginalized and the incarcerated and the foreigner, but he came and lived as the incarcerated and the brutalized and the foreigner uh, and the, the sufferer. And, and so we, we have to deal with these worldly views of Jesus. I mean, I can introduce you to some. There, there's the white Jesus, there's the black Jesus, there's the Republican Jesus, there's the Democrat Jesus, there's the English-only Jesus, uh, there's the Hollywood Jesus, uh, there's the pretty Jesus. You know the Jesus, like no acne, no birthmark, no, just no mold, just pretty Jesus. Emerald blue eyes. Yeah, just emerald, just, he's so pretty, I don't even know if I can pray Brad to him. Pretty. Yeah, just, just, yes. Like, I'm, that's, that's real pretty. There's <laughs> also your own personal Jesus. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh, sorry. Did you want to say no, I didn't say that. <laughs> so my question is, uh, uh, recently, just to kind of give a context for my question, I, I've been engaged in a predominantly African-American church, myself and another white family, other white people there. But it's evangelical and leans fundamentalist. So recently, as I got more engaged and comfortable, I, I presented the idea with the senior pastor to uh, do, facilitate Lectio Divina with anyone who might be interested in the church. His first response was, what's that? I've never heard of it. And then once I explained it a little bit, he was very resistant. Which, this is not a, that's not my question. My question is, you talked about less sustainable forms of prayer and, and life with God versus a more sustainable form of prayer and life with God. <clears throat> so with that in mind, my question is, it, like the, the more sustainable version is, is an ancient version that is handed down to us over a long period of time. And the less sustainable version is, is new. <clears throat> so like, how would you say, why are we where we are with the newer version? compared to the older version, and how might that inform how we can help a congregation or, or anyone start to be open to or see the need for or go from one to the other? If that, did that make sense? Yeah, so how, so how, do we, how did we get here? Um, Reimagine it here. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how we got here except to, as to say, um, 
I think the church, generally speaking, often suffers from a significant case of amnesia, um, not knowing where we've come from. And so there is a, a, from generation to generation, this is not just a one-time thing, I think we often have to do the very hard work of recovery where we've been, the riches of a global historic church. And so I just think generally speaking, um, there's a sense of amnesia that we think now is what we need and, and all that stuff is, uh, is old. And so that's just one general uh, way of saying that. Uh, how do we, we um, reimagine or reintegrate it? Well, I think as a pastor, um, beyond just a preaching moment, I think I have to, uh, in proportionate ways, uh, teach people and model something and disciple something. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, you know, follow me as I follow Jesus. And he's talking about food sacrifice to idols. But I think the principle is that, that people need models. People need people to follow. And uh, that might sound a bit horrifying to some folks to say it like that, follow me as I follow Jesus. Who do we think we are to say that? But I do think that's what we're called to do. And not to live it perfectly, but to live with integrity. And my, my definition of integrity is not living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. And I think as if we can wrestle with something faithfully and model it for people, um, I think then we can begin to see the, um, the, the slow effects of integrating it. And so, I mean, in most of my sermons, I'm creating space for silence and prayer. Now, I come from a tradition where uh, I... My first few years preaching was in the black and the Latino Pentecostal tradition in which there was a really big climax as we're heading to the end of the sermon there. And so there's celebration and praise. And so how do I cultivate that and really still embrace that at the same time, do like what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said in Life Together. He says, we are to be silent before the word because God should have the first word. We are to be silent after the word because God should have the last word. And so how do I create now uh, uh, space to cultivate that silence. Some of it is modeled from the pulpit, some of it is modeled in uh, leadership development. But I think little by little, that needs to be modeled as this thing tries to take shape in the life of a given congregation. Great question. Who else? Can the Holy Spirit work through tradition? And if so, how do we discern which traditions are man-made and which are from the Spirit? Uh, can, can the Holy Spirit work through tradition? Yes. And because I think even as we talked about um, communion, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but I mean, there, of course, there's significant uh, biblical rootedness about communion. There's significance about communion because it was demonstrated through Jesus, but it's also to a degree traditional and churches around the globe are still experiencing the Holy Spirit through it. So I I would say, yes. Um, And now how to discern um, whether, you know, whether that's happening or not within the tradition itself, I think you have to revisit the motivation behind why. Um, sometimes people are stuck in tradition simply because they do not want to change. Some people uh, are stuck in tradition uh, because it's just, it's comfortable for them. Um, And so I think you have to wrestle with not just the faithfulness of tradition, but the fruitfulness of tradition. And if the tradition is still bearing fruit, then that might be a sign that the Holy Spirit is moving. That's a, that's a good word. It, it made me think when you said that about Todd Hunter saying today that in the prayers of the people, how you know it's just part of the prayers of the people to pray for the president and for the leaders of the country and how that's hard, you know, depending on kind of where you are. Like that, that can be really difficult, but, I just, that, but that's, it's just there. It's part of what's done. I read a quote here, and I just, um, there was something I read recently by uh, 
a Christian theologian in, uh, at Yale. And he made a distinction between tradition and traditionalism, and a Jaroslav Pelikan. And um, he said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And, um, and I, think that's the, I, I think that's a significant distinction there, where it's the living faith. What, what's, what, when does tradition become into traditionalism? When it lo- no longer gives life. <laughs> And, and, we, and we seek to now hold on to it at all costs, even at the sake of the death that, and the stench of death that's surrounding us. So I think there's a difference between tradition and traditionalism. Yeah, that's great. Who else? One thing I, I've been wrestling with on this whole thing is, is Asking the question, what's, true, what's life-giving in the tradition, but also how might the spirit be moving to morph the tradition, uh, to expand it? And I've been thinking of like Peter, when uh, you know, he's in Jerusalem, but Jesus had told him, go out in all the world, but you know, a couple years later, they're still hanging out in, in Jerusalem, and uh, got us to kind of kick him out of there to get him to start evangelizing. And Peter then, through a series of dreams, gets led over to Cornelius, um, and then the Holy Spirit falls on the whole household as he's preaching. And, and so Peter goes, well, I, I guess uh, if, if they receive the Holy Spirit, they must be Christians, so I guess we've got to baptize them. Uh, it's as though Jesus had not said anything about, you know, this, it's like brand new to him. But, and then they have this big debate about, like, how do we include these Gentiles? And, and you know, we, if, you put, if you enter into a first century Palestinian Jewish perspective, these were hot, hot, hot issues. I mean, this was, this was a tough conversation, but you know, the Acts 15 uh, you know, council thing, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They had to hammer it out. They finally said, okay, we can agree on these things, you know, and, and <laughs> how can Jews and Gentiles li- live together? And so we're like now asking that question about like with gay marriage and, and has the traditional stance been uh, too skewed? Um, are we, are, is our stance Christ-like? And what do we observe? Is, do we see God, you know, moving? Uh, and, and I was at a church last year where it, the church had, had become an affirming church, and, and, and so a lot of the folks, the straight folks had left, but a bunch of gay folks had come in. And, and it was the only time I've ever been in a service where all these folks are holding hands and arms around each other and praising God, and I couldn't deny that I, the Holy Spirit is really tangible here. I don't know what, what that, does that sell doctrinal issues? No, but it counts for something. It's like, pay attention to this, and that's got to work your way into how you, you know, you read scripture. We, we don't read in a vacuum. We come out of a, you know, our, our experience, our cultural experience, our spiritual experience, and it makes a difference. Great. Other questions? Checking our time. Okay, he has another. How do you be inclusive of, when talking about ancient things into the future and traditions, how do you be inclusive of science into all of that or the conversation that comes up when people may negate or try to include? It's just your thoughts on all that stuff. Science, 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 like in general. When some people say science doesn't work, some people say science does. How, how, how do you guys just go about maybe an introduction of a conversation like that? We, we, we just... That's not a Gregory question. No, we, we, we just finished a series on this at Woodland Hills called I, 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 When a Faith and a Physicist, I, 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 a Priest and a Physicist Walk Into a Bar, dot, dot, dot. That was the title of it. And uh, uh, then, then we had a contest as I, how to complete the joke. You know, they put, put in some line there. Anyways, um, I think I had the best line because I said, a Priest and a Physicist Walk Into a Bar, uh, the, the Priest that knows where the bartender is, but the physicist knows how fast the drink's being delivered. <laughs> so you have to know Heisenberg's principle to get that. Okay, anyway, boom, ching. So, so our, our whole thing is like, we're supposed to worship God with all of our mind. And God never tells us to check our minds at the door. Come, let us reason. And uh, Jesus presented with many proofs of his resurrection. And, and so I think God wants us to use our brain, and part of what we use our the brain's meant to think. So if we're going to worship God with all of our mind, we've got to worship God with all of our think. And, and it's about the integrity of that think. And so I think we have to look honestly at the world and at the evidence. And, and, and it's, I think Galileo was right when he said, look at, yeah, God reveals himself in his word, but God's also 
present in creation, and that's system about God too. Uh, like, and he's saying this just at the time where they're learning how to talk the language of nature in order to get answers back so they can manipulate nature for our you know, technological advances. And the language of nature is math. And so Galileo is saying, look, we, we, we found out God's language is math, and we're learning how, you know, how this world is structured, and this is a good thing. Um, and, and, and so I think we have to like, just balance that. And there's, there's no right, one right way to do that, and people are going to you know, assess it differently. I think at the end of the day, that the open-mindedness and the love with which we bring to these conversations is more important in the particular positions that we end up defending, as long as we give each other enough grace to have differences of opinion. I think that um, wonder levels the playing field. Mm -hmm. That I have found when I'm around people that have a deep passion for science, there's, there's this childlike wonder in them. Uh, and there is a childlike wonder that we're called to sustain in our Christian walk. And I think that that wonder ought to be the bridge between science and faith and develop a conversation that we can facilitate in the church. Kurt Thompson has a fascinating book called The Anatomy of the Soul that deals with neuroscience and spiritual practices. It's fascinating. Yeah, The Anatomy of the Soul from Kurt Thompson that deals with neuroscience and spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices. I was thinking the same. And then there's a woman, a South African, I think her name is Dr. Erickson, I could be wrong. Uh, but she talks about um, just how the brain, just the neuroscience and how it just, it matches up with um, God's design for us. And it's just, it's been so beautiful. It takes faith and science both. It's not ever one or the other. We got to say brain is another one. I, uh, I think his name is Jennings. Oh, got some gotcha, brain. <laughs> Any other final thoughts before we pray? And yes. Just briefly, I wanted to affirm uh, from what you said about introducing prayers from other traditions, particularly from the Black tradition, or other even traditions of people of color, even other sides of the continent. We've, we started doing that about a year ago in our congregation through prayers of the people and the conversations that it opens up after the fact. And we, we, we pray the same prayer of the people throughout the month. So it not only gives us a chance to tell the story of the person who pins the prayer um, over and over again, it gives us a chance to have dialogue about the need for that kind of formation and standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before. So I just want to, I appreciate you mentioning it and wanted to affirm that as practiced experience. I have four kids, so I yelled a lot. Um, I'd like to add on to that too. A book that was very impacting to me was by Barbara Holmes on contemplation in the black church. And, uh, and one of the things that so moved me because my, the, my Wesleyan history is our people began as abolitionists. These are white people, but they were abolitionists. And so we praised these white folks for being abolitionists. I'm, I'm very grateful. In fact, there was, a mess, there was a statement in North Carolina that there were not enough nooses to hang all the Wesleyans they wanted to hang. And uh, so th this is really radical. But in her book, she talks about in the Hush Arbor in South Carolina, and they'd hang blankets, the enslaved would hang blankets, and so that they couldn't be heard because if the masters heard them pray, they were beaten. And she s talked about how they're still in the, there was cane and with knee, knee prints uh, where they had prayed, Lord set us free, Lord set us free. And I'm telling you, every time I think about that, it was God answering those prayers. These abolitionists, yes, they were part of that answer, but it was the answer to those prayers that were in the forests of South Carolina that people responded later to here. And um, I, I, I just, I really, it's a very powerful, powerful book and powerful reminder of what, of, of that deep contemplative life that took place in the enslaved. Great, well thank you for joining us. We'll close in prayer. Would you pray with me? Jesus, may your words become our words as we seek you in the quiet place, as we carry you through with us, as you carry us 
with you, Lord. Thank you for your indwelling, your abiding, your healing presence, your transformative presence in our bodies, in our minds. And I pray, Lord, that as we go about the rest of our day, Lord, that we would be even more conscious of who's around us, of, of seeing your image in the eyes of those we meet and greet and engage. So I thank you for this deep work and for this deep conversation. And I thank you for the people that have led us and um, just pray that you would open our minds and our ears that we might hear you more rightly and that we may respond with obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a round of applause for us.